Please pray with me. Father in heaven, please speak. Please fill our hearts by your spirit that we might delight in your truth. And Father, please humble us to be content to be like our King. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 uh, and verse 16. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool, since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. With far greater labours, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Well, brother, I wonder if you are, if you are thinking about the words that Paul uses to describe his ministry. I wonder which words you would choose to pluck out of the New Testament. In fact, it occurred to me this week that with strong numbers, you could actually play ministry bingo. That is, connect the numbers that connected to Paul's key ministry words and then kind of work out who wins by working out if you've got the right set of numbers. It seems to me that Strong's number 770 is a key New Testament word to describe ministry. This is what it is, astheneo, 36 occurrences. The AV translates as be weak 12 times, be sick 10 times, sick 7 times, weak 3 times, impotent man once, be diseased once and be made weak once to be weak, feeble, to be without strength, powerless. Part of the problem of 2,000 years of church history is that the word weak has kind of taken on a light glow and luster about it that means we kind of bandy it around with a little too much frequency without reflecting again on the nature of what weakness actually looks like. It seems to me that the word here, feeble, maybe gets a little bit closer to appreciating what Paul means when he talks about weakness in the New Testament. Um, what, what does it mean to be feeble? 
Um, a few years ago uh, at college, I went through a number of years of significant ill health in and out of hospital, I don't know, about 10 times over the course of three years. Uh, and all sorts of things happened to me in my body at that time, which are not polite to talk about in public. Um, every time I went to the bathroom for about a year, I bled. Um, I remember being pulled out of my bed the morning after abdominal surgery and being made to sit in this chair and blow in this stupid little thing where the balls are supposed to bounce up and down and feeling like I was about to blow my insides out and the balls barely kind of registering a flicker in the tube. I remember spending three months sleeping in an armchair because I couldn't lie flat because of the pain. To be feeble is to be at the point where you can't do what you want to do. To be feeble is to be powerless, to lack the strength to do the things that other people do, to, to rely on someone to help you move from place to place, to require colleagues to do your job for you because you can't do it at the moment, to ask for simple things like a glass of water because actually getting out of the chair and getting yourself a glass of water is a task that's beyond you. In the passage today, the Apostle Paul wants to celebrate being feeble and having a ministry that is feeble. So, brothers, I wanted to ask you this morning, did you come to college to be enfeebled? Have you come to college to be made weak, to understand who you are and where you actually fit in God's plans for the world? Have you come to feel like you can't do it? I suspect it might be one of the most important lessons that you learn during your time here. In order to understand why, you need to get into the passage. So uh, let me remind you where we're up to. Paul's come to Corinth with the gospel. He's committed these people in relationship to the Lord Jesus. He's betrothed them to him, them to him and he's worried that they're now going to walk away from that Jesus and follow another gospel. And Paul's wrestling with the Corinthians because there are these other group of people who look super impressive and who have brought a different message. And Paul's, as we saw last week, got himself into trouble because he said, you shouldn't play the comparison games that you need to play with them, but I've got no other way of proving myself to you. So today I'm going to boast of how my ministry is different from theirs. But the first thing you've got to notice as you read through the passage is how uncomfortable it makes Paul feel to even begin to boast, even though he's going to boast about the wrong kinds of things. Look at how many times he says it, verse 16. Let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. And it gets a bit more strident in verse 17. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. I'm not actually talking in the way that Jesus, I think, would have me talk. I'm, I'm just talking foolish to you. Verse 21, I'm speaking as a fool. Verse 23, I'm talking like a madman. Um, one of the really interesting things about this passage is for Paul to get to the point of even being willing to boast, even boast about things that don't seem the right kinds of things to boast about, make him kind of curl up inside. There's a kind of visceral distaste for this process of actually promoting himself or trying to prove that he's worthwhile or valuable or to speak about the value of his ministry with other people. I wonder what kinds of language and words you use to describe the ministry that you're involved with or how you feel when it comes to promoting what you are and what makes you good and what makes you worthwhile. Do you ever think things like, oh man, we, we are the people who are doing something like no one else in the world is. We're the people who've got ministry. 
do you talk about the numbers of people that you're training or the numbers of people who are coming to Christ or when you're asked to promote your ministry, when you're asked what's going on in your ministry life, what do you feel tempted to boast about? But here's the more important question. Do you feel slightly superior or more significant because of whatever it is that the distinctives are that you choose to speak about in terms of yourself? Do you just feel like what you're doing is just a little bit better than the people down the road? Brothers, one of my observations about life in Sydney is that tribalism is one of our very great dangers. It is very easy to be part of the tribe and we become part of the right tribe by promoting the right things and using the right words and by saying that what we're doing is better than what other people are doing. Now, it's kind of weird, right, because I hope that you actually believe in the distinctives of whatever it is that you do in ministry because if you don't believe in them, you shouldn't do them. So there's this weird kind of complexity about actually believing and trusting in the deep things that we want to characterise our ministry, but at the same time there's an enormous danger of them creating in us a pride or a sense of superiority that's very, very unhealthy. Do you hear how uncomfortable Paul feels about using the language of boasting? Brothers, that ought to characterise our hearts and ought to characterise us as we come to talk about the ministry that we're involved with. However, as we move on and Paul gets into the boast, do you notice that his boasting is particularly against and counter to the shape of the ministry of the super apostles? And Paul speaks about their ministry in a kind of weird way in verse 20 in particular. Listen to what he says to the Corinthians. You bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say we were too weak for that. Now, this verse has actually caused me a lot of anguish this week. Um, is Paul speaking metaphorically or is he speaking realistically? Like, were they actually, were they enslaving people? Were they actually striking people? Or is that just a metaphorical description of what's going on? But even more, why have a go at the Corinthians for the mistreatment of their leaders? Look at what he says. You know, you bear it if someone comes and makes slaves of you or devours you. So he seems to be actually accusing the Corinthians of being responsible for this kind of leadership that's come and taken advantage of them. That's a really complex space to think through, isn't it? I mean, as I was thinking through this passage this week, I think there's been a number of kind of high-profile things in the evangelical world in the last three or four years where very significant leaders have been revealed to actually be one way in public and another way in private. Names like Ravi Zacharias or John Smythe or Steve Timmis might ring bells for you. People who have acted one way publicly and perhaps even been orthodox in terms of their presentation of the gospel but come and actually been another way privately in all sorts of abusive and unhealthy ways. But as I've reflected on 2 Corinthians, I don't think that that's what Paul's taking aim at here, even though he would be horrified and absolutely reject the way that those men have behaved. He's actually having a go at the Corinthians for buying into and accepting a shape of ministry that claims to have power and authority and wealth and all the other good things attached to it. You could misread this passage and think that Paul's kind of blaming the victims here and it's actually the responsibility of the leaders. But there are types of ministries that celebrate power 
in which the people who are part of that ministry are complicit in the activity of that. And so as I reflected this week, I suspect that what was going on in Corinth was probably something more like the kind of Kenneth Copelands and the Creflo Dollars of our world rather than kind of the Steve Timmises and John Smyers of our world. Now, I don't know whether you've caught up with Kenneth Copeland recently. Um, he is a man who is promoting the, the power gospel, the glory gospel, the health and wealth gospel uh, in a way that few others can. Um, I picked up the first copy of his magazine that I picked up this week called The Believer's Voice of Victory. The first article in it is entitled, It's Your Inheritance, Enjoy It! Exclamation mark. And the tagline reads, Right now, you as a born-again child of God are rich beyond your wildest imaginations, and I don't just mean spiritually, I mean financially and materially. And then the article suggests, we should expect him to increase us more and more, us and our children, and if it disturbs someone's religious sensitivities, too bad. So he is blatantly, boldly out there in his claims, and all sorts of people are actually in his ministry that actually buy into that reality. And Paul, in a sense, would say to them, don't be so foolish. But I actually want you to think a little, even a step further. Because Paul here isn't talking to people who have never seen the authentic gospel or experienced it. He's actually talking to the Corinthians, who received his apostolic ministry and now are being led astray by the, the wonder and power of a gospel that seems to promote something that's much better and much more attractive. Do you believe that you or people in your church could actually be attracted by that kind of promise? See, think about it. These people received the ministry of the Apostle Paul and they still went after the gospel of power and wealth and prosperity. Brothers, I hope that that just that reminds you of the nature of the human heart and of some of the significance of what we do in our ministry. How are you training yourself and the people that you teach to actually appreciate the goodness of the weakness of a gospel that says that our final revelation of who we are actually awaits the return of the Lord Jesus? And that what it means to follow Jesus in the here and now might actually involve suffering and difficulty and pain and a whole bunch of other things because being faithful to Christ well, you're probably going to end up looking a bit like Jesus looked. Jesus spoke the truth and where did it get him? Jesus stood up for justice and righteousness and where did it get him? Jesus healed people and where did it get him? As much as we think that this gospel is kind of out there and it's not going to affect us, I actually wonder whether we need to keep thinking about the dangers for us of a gospel that's attractive in some way. And Paul counters that by actually just describing the experience of his own ministry. Pick it up with me in verse 23. With far greater labours, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. And Paul doesn't leave that to your imagination, but he then spells out some of what that looked like. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, lest one. 39. Like, imagine it, 39 times. Bare back, whipped across the back. Not once, not twice, not three times. Not I mean, at what point do you say, I just give in? But he didn't, by the grace of God. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. I mean, how many times do you have to be shipwrecked before you stop stepping on a boat? <laughs> but you actually, like, stop and think about that for a minute. <laughs> um, he went back again and again and again and again. On frequent journeys, danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and you could name incidents in Acts in his letters that describe all of these things. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. I mean, it's remarkable, isn't it? It's not that he was bare grills. He didn't go out and do these things in order to kind of display the power of his endurance. He didn't have a medical team on standby and a couple of helicopters circling overhead in case he got into danger. He just went and did stuff that put himself in great physical danger because, I think, he was so persuaded of the truth of the gospel and of people's need to hear about Jesus that he was just willing to do this stuff. Those things were less important to him than the need for Jesus to be glorified and people to know about him. He was self-sacrificially giving of himself at every moment for the sake of the glory and honour of the Lord Jesus and because he loved people. Now I've got to confess to you, um, pain makes me anxious. Physical pain makes me quite deeply anxious. Um, Paul, I think, knew physical pain beyond anything that I've ever known and he was willing to go back again. I presume that that only happens because he was empowered by the spirit of the living God and because he understood the grace of the gospel. Now, you could completely misconstrue this. I have met people for whom every choice must involve the most personally miserable option because that's the only way to serve Jesus. That's not what the Apostle Paul is saying at all. What he is saying is that because I love Christ and I love people, I'm willing to go and do difficult things. So before we finish the section, do you notice it's not just the external reality. Actually, maybe the greatest anguish for Paul was just loving and living with people. Verse 28. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? For Paul, loving people meant the potential for heartbreak because he can preach the gospel but he can't bring conversion and he can call people from sin but he can't stop people from sinning. He can invite people to keep going with Jesus but he doesn't ultimately control the outcome. And as he goes and does his ministry, he loves the people that he preaches to and then he has to leave the churches behind and what's going to happen when he goes? And so who is weak and I am not weak? I don't think the two things that Paul uses to describe his situation here are accidental. I suspect that they relate very closely to the situation in Corinth. In the midst of this power ministry, he knows that there are some there who will actually be acutely feeling their weakness and wondering whether they fit. And I think his appeal here is, actually, I know weakness. Weakness is our gospel. If you're feeling weak, it's the right kind of gospel to have. But then he has a little go, I think, at the super apostles. Who is made to fall? Who is brought into sin? And I am not indignant. The word is actually to burn. 
he burns with anger at the falseness of a ministry that's actually leading people astray from the, from the true gospel. And then, just to kind of lighten the mood a smidgen, but to actually drive home the point, he finishes with his last little anecdote. If I must boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Of all the things that I could tell you about how good I am, I was being chased. I didn't confront the guy. I didn't pray down fire from heaven. I didn't stand at the city gate and bring miracles to pass. I got lowered in a basket through the window and I ran off into the night. That's pretty much what happened. Do you want to know? And actually, just think about how remarkable that is. In the next chapter, Paul will say, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Paul healed people and raised the dead, but still the thing that he would boast of is being let down in a basket through the wall and running off into the night. Which actually tells you a couple of things. It tells you that the miracles weren't just on tap for Paul to use at any time he liked, however he liked. They were always in the hands of God. But it also shows you that even though Paul had experienced all the power and wonder, if you like, of the inbreaking of the trueness of the new kingdom, what he knew characterised him and would continue to characterise him in this world was weakness and suffering and beating and getting downtrodden and going hungry and not wondering, wondering what was going to happen next. Because that's just the nature of faithful, true gospel ministry. Brothers, do you ever dream of what your future ministry will look like? Do you ever dream about what God might do through you and what it might look like to be someone who is lauded or asked to speak at conferences or encouraged to teach others about what ministry looks like? If I could plead with you about one thing as a result of reading this passage, it would be this. Let go of being famous and the desire to be famous. Put it to death. Pray for God to scrunch it up and throw it away. It does not matter who knows about you or what book you've written or which conference you've preached at or what magazine you've written for or what course you've produced that's transformed the world. What actually matters is that at the end of your life that you have been faithful to the gospel of the Lord Jesus. If you have given yourself up out of love for Jesus in the service of the saints and for the sake of the salvation of people on that last day, Jesus will welcome you with open arms and delight and rejoice in your ministry. Not because anybody knew you, but because he knew you and was pleased to strengthen you to persevere to do Christ's work no matter the cost. Give up being famous. Let go of the desire to be noticed. Reject the drive to be successful. Be content with being feeble. Now, please don't mishear me. I'm not saying be incompetent. And I'm not saying be lazy. Those things aren't elements of weakness. 
but weakness is being human in a fallen, sinful world, preaching a gospel that will experience rejection and realising that you can't control the results. They actually belong in the hands of God. Brothers, give up being famous and know the one who's famous. Let's pray. Father, please shape our hearts by the truth of your gospel. Please help us to let go of those stupid desires that lie in the recesses of our hearts that long to be noticed and famous. Father, please help us to be content to serve Jesus, to speak his truth in love, and to call people to faith and repentance in Christ, no matter the cost to us. Father, do it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.